loss helps us define our lives. By allowing our grief to matter, we discover our own strengths and embrace our authentic selves. Welcome to Good Grief with your host, Cheryl Jones. Get ready to be inspired, to create a deeper life, to make your time on Earth much more meaningful. Now, here is Cheryl Jones. Hello, I'm your host, Cheryl Jones, and I want to welcome you to Good Grief, where we talk each week about the transformations that can come from loss. Today, I'm welcoming Mary Potter Kenyon back to the show. Mary graduated from the University of Northern Iowa and works as program coordinator at Shalom Spirituality Center. She's a certified grief counselor and therapeutic art coach. She founded the annual Hope and Healing Grief Retreat and a writer's conference in Dubuque. She's the author of eight books, including Refined by Fire, A Journey of Grief and Grace, Expressive Writing for Healing, Journal Your Way from Grief to Hope, and Called to be Creative, A Guide to Reigniting Your Creativity, and also a children's book on loss to be released in 2024. Welcome, Mary. Thank you for having me. I'm very happy to have you. I really enjoy having guests back that I haven't talked with for a few years because I'm being 25 years out from my wife's death. I know we keep growing and changing in relationship to our losses. So I've really looked forward to this opportunity to see where where you've gone from, from our last point of contact which was to talk about uh, both your book, Chemotherapist, and Refined by Fire, yes? Yes, yes, I think it's been a few years. Yeah, definitely, at least a few years. I, I didn't look the, up the date, but it's been a while. <laughs> so um, what's interesting to me is the, that you found your way really back to writing through difficulty, through challenges, uh, wouldn't you say? Yes, um, I think the majority of my writing has been done in the last 10 years since my mother's death and then my husband's death and my grandson's death, but I'd been writing for 25 years before that. It's it's just if you look at how much I've been writing since then, it's the, the seven books I've had published have been since 2012. Right, and what what interests me about it is uh, this, this simple... T- Impulse to Give, um, your books progressively are more geared towards giving giving help to others, I would say. Obviously, memoirs help other people. I, that's my favorite way to be helped, on, in a sense. <laughs> but um, these are kind of what you've learned about what works in grief, yes? Yes. Is that how you look at it as well? Yes, the, the most recent book, the Um, called to be creative was actually I could say begun a month after my mother died because she had been such a creative person and so that's when I wrote notes down about what this this book would be because to lose somebody so creative like that and to to think about creativity in a different way I started that book but I didn't get back to it for another seven eight years because I was writing the other books and, but I had that outline right after her death. I had the the outline. And so then I returned to that book and it didn't mean that I wasn't thinking about it or living the creative life or speaking on creativity. I was all along and writing 
um, articles about creativity and reading books about creativity. So it was in the background of my grieving was this sense of creativity. And then when I realized how much creativity is healing for us mm. when we're grieving, that's when I picked up that book again. And I thought, you know what, it's, it's time to, to write that book and to help people find their way, not just through grief, but through life and to discover what it is that they were called to do. That connects with an idea that I have mostly from working with clients in grief and my own experiences that, uh, you know, obviously, and you don't, you don't um, try to get around this, grief is so painful in so many ways. And at the same time, there can be this sense of creative burst that I certainly experienced and uh, the people I find having the hardest time are people that don't have a way to do that or don't trust their creativity or, you know, don't, don't, um, it's knocking on their head, you know, dig in the dirt, play a song, write, whatever it is for a particular person. And the ones I find that struggle the most don't listen to that. And then they're just stuck with all of that with nowhere to go. And we all have it in us. We all are, science is behind it, shows that we are designed to be creative. And so we all have that in us. And we all equally have the tools to help us through grieving. And those two can, can connect. That creativity is one of the tools that we can use. For me, it was writing. So I instinctively turned to journaling, even though I'd never journaled. I'd written for 20-some years, but I'd never journaled. Mm. until I lost my husband. And then I instinctively turned to journaling. Well, three months in and looking at the journaling and what I'd written, I thought, well, how do people do this without writing about it? Mm. And so I started looking into different types of creativity. We can actively work on our grief through journaling, through painting, through collages, through painting on rocks, through random acts of kindness. There's all these different tools available to us and they almost all involve some sort of creative bent. And people who say they're not creative, and there's a lot of people who say that, aren't looking at themselves the way we might be looking at them. They aren't seeing how maybe their creative bent is towards cooking or baking or gardening. gardening. And getting out in nature helps us through grief too. So I just revel in helping people discover what it is that's inside of them and has always been there all along and maybe they saw as a child but they kind of abandoned as an adult what it is in them that they were called or designed to do and mm. to be a part of that to help them discover that is so exciting to me especially when I work with women in their 50s 60s 70s 80s who say I don't have a creative bone in my body and when I help them see what it is that they loved as a child or how their baking is creative or how their gardening is creative or how they can work with children and have that talent that's creative too. And when we can apply those creative things to having a healthier, healthier life, we're healthier, we're happier if we are being creative and that applies to grief too. I just made the connection. I wonder what you think of this. You know, you talk in your book about the ways that our creativity gets actively shut down, you know, uh, 
you don't have a voice, don't sing, or um, you don't know how to write, whatever it is, right? Yeah. Um, but I just realized it's similar, the ways that, that our emotions get shut down is similar to the way our creativity gets shut down. I wonder if that sort of goes together, like, if you're going to be creative, you feel stuff. <laughs> I, I love that insight, because it can just be one person who stops you from whatever it was you loved as a child. It could be one teacher who said, oh, you know, that coloring, you color outside the lines, that's no good. Or one person as an adult who tells us, well, you can't do that. And isn't that the same in grief? Is somebody tells, well, you, you have to grieve this way. or well, you, you Grief can't. is somehow wrong. Yes. <laughs> you, you can't not do Christmas for your kids this year because your other child died because think of the kids. But maybe you can do Christmas different. But how dare we tell each other how you can't do something. Well, I always feel like, and I bet you're the same. As soon as somebody tells you you can't, you are darn well going to do it, aren't you? <laughs> Um, well, yes, I do have that quality. I'm, yes. <laughs> I'm remembering, though, this man I had in a, in a music workshop once. It was a grief. It was a day of grief healing. Uh, the art of, of um, saying goodbye was the name of it. And I was doing the music section and he got randomly assigned because there were a few people left and, you know, for various reasons. And he came in and sat down and he said, I've never sung because my mother was an opera singer and I knew there was no way I could ever sing well enough. Yep. Yep. <laughs> and, so I said, and so I said, well, okay then, maybe you won't sing today either, but listen and assume that if something should come out of your mouth, no one's going to care how you sound. Right. And, and by the end of the day, he was singing at the top of his lungs. It was the most, it was one of the most satisfying moments. Um, We're scared of failure. We're scared of failing at what we, at trying something new or trying something different. And we're also scared it's not going to look like what it's supposed to look like, or it's not going to look like what somebody else did. And we have to get past that because kids don't care, right? We didn't care when we were five years old, if we made a mess of our, of our, um, finger paints or if we colored outside the lines. We didn't care until somebody told us to care. And then as adults, we carry that with us and then we start to care. And it's not going to look as good as this person. Or like you said, that man, it's not going to sound like his mother. Well, that's fine. It, it, right. It, it shouldn't. Yeah, right. <laughs> you, know, exactly. you would think with all that practice, she'd sound better. But right. <laughs> how relevant is that? And we have to learn how to play and have fun again. It's mm -hmm. so good for us. Absolutely. Let, let's hear, let's let people hear the, the kind of the voice of the book a little bit. Could you, um, could you share a bit from the book right from when, uh, from right after when your mother died? Let's start with that because it seems to me like, well, some things happened. You had a lot of children, but your husband helped make space. That's a big deal, right? Yes, it was. <laughs> um, but then what happened to me was quite miraculous. Let's, let's share that. I spent a lot of time alone in my mother's empty house during the weeks following her death, sitting at that table, praying and writing. All winter and well into the spring, I utilized the house, reveling in the unaccustomed silence. During breaks from writing, I'd pour over the remaining boxes of her possessions, 
searching for clues to the enigma of a mother who'd managed to spend a lifetime practicing her varied talents. Words collided with images from a distant past as I wrote my way through that winter. I worked in a fog of grief that brought memories of my mother and me to the forefront. The two of us at parallel play, sitting on the front porch, her with art and me with words. She would paint, sew, or carve something beautiful from a piece of wood, while my teenage self wrote angst-filled poetry or short stories. I worked on many projects in my mother's house that winter of discontent. Ten miles from home, I'd found the room of my own that author Virginia Woolf had insisted every female writer needed. I managed to accomplish as much in 12 weeks writing at my mother's table as I had in the previous 12 months at home. I credited the solitude, mom's creative spirit, and perhaps the table itself for my productivity, worrying it would all dissipate once the house sold and the table was delivered to my sister. It didn't. If anything, immersing myself in creativity begat even more creativity. In the year following the sale of the house, I attended my first two writers' conferences, planned and implemented a writing course for homeschooled teens, and designed another for adults. I conducted workshops at local community colleges, which resulted in a weekly column for an area newspaper. Several of my essays were accepted for anthologies, and I began doing public speaking. I just have to say that I was not uh, so accomplished in that period of my grief. I lived a pretty quiet life that that period of time. Um, and, but I wonder, you know, you, you were still homeschooling children. You were still very active in everyday, um, ac um, you know, demanding activities, really. My kids were going to school. That was a big help because <laughs> yeah. I could make quiet. And so I wonder if that geared you towards a grief of, of activity. I don't actually know, except I think I, as you said, I had a lot of children at home and I was homeschooling. I think getting away from the internet, getting away from the phone, because there was no phone service in her empty house. There was no internet service. Um, I could make a cup of tea and, I, there, you know, just, I think we all need that. Very few of us get that, that solitude and that silence. I was mm -hmm. lucky to have that. And sometimes we have to impose that upon ourselves. And you know what happens when it's quiet? You, the grief hits and it hits hard. So there's a lot of crying going on in that empty house too. In between <laughs> yes. The first, yes. In between the bursts of crying I, there was so much creative energy, I think, from her or from her environment that I, I was just going to take advantage of that creative energy. And it was uh, very, what's, very much creative time for me. Yeah. What's interesting to me about your, your mom, you know, I had a pretty creative mom, but she had a very strong sense of the right way to do things and the wrong way to do things. And she was a great contributor to my creativity getting locked up when I was when I was young, you know, <laughs> did I play the right note or not and all of that. But it seems to me your mother unleashed creativity, like there was something in the way she shared that that said, um, this is for you too, you know, and, and didn't, it doesn't seem as if she put much of a evaluative 
stamp on it, like good writing, bad writing. Um, is that a is that an accurate impression of her? Because I did get a sense of her in in your writing. I think you're right, and that was very freeing for all of us kids. First of all, she believed we could do anything, and that helps. She encouraged us in quiet ways, like putting a big chief red tablet in my underwear drawer when I was gone at school. You know, then she it led me to believe she knew that I wanted to be a writer someday and was encouraging without saying anything. She was encouraging that. Plus, I don't know if we even really saw her as that creative when we were growing up because you're kids and you don't see that in somebody. <laughs> but everything she did was creative. And a lot of it was um, because through necessity, she had to make the quilts to keep us warm. She made some of our toys. She painted to make her and did wall hangings to make our home warm and comfy and stuff. So part of it was necessity. Other was her invention and her own creative spirit. It takes a, a, a lot more time, though, and thought and energy to actually create things of beauty than to simply make a covering so you don't freeze, mm -hmm. for instance. A, a quilt, I'm remembering an exhibit I saw of um, some some Southern women who all had made these incredible quilts out of necessity but they cared about the beauty of it. They cared about the creation of something um, remarkable. Mm -hmm. So that has to be in there too, doesn't it? And that I may have been very, very lucky to have a mother like that, but my father was like that too in his own way. He could take apart two stereos that didn't work and make one working stereo. And he, I mean, for somebody who just went through eighth grade, he was like one of the smartest people I knew. So he, because he read and he knew things, you know, so. It's just, I think I was very lucky to grow up in a home like that, and not everybody does. But we, those of us who don't grow up in that, I hope can leave a legacy of our own for our own children or, you know, for people who know us of creativity. And we all can do that. We can all find ways to be creative. Uh, another connection I'm making talking with you is just that grief itself is a creative process because we don't know what's coming and we don't know what we're going to do with it and we don't know what how it's going to end up you know so there's a certain amount of and sometimes that frees people i've found you know when they can't get out of it and they have to just accept well this is what's happening uh there's some way they get more comfortable not knowing how to do something right yeah it's not always comfortable though is it <laughs> no and especially and always, at first yeah it's not always comfortable to explore our creativity either because we're, it's something that's supposed to be for leisure time, but we need to work it into our lives as adults. Yeah, and not be such hidden creators, because um, I know with my clients, I can, I can usually tell where their creative energy is going, but it's not always recognized by them so they can make use of it, and it's often getting judged. Mm-hmm, yeah. Um, I once had an artist as a client who who had an artist block and um, she had to learn how to fail basically because she was good at it so you know she didn't fail that much but if you if you don't fail it doesn't grow and that's the hardest thing for us as adults is to allow ourselves to fail and yet we need to we need to allow that we need to allow that in grief and in art and in creativity 
I'm so with you on that. And I, I got to say that your books would be encouraging in that way because you're pretty transparent about your own process with these things and the evolution to really being so comfortable in that creative space. Even though you were encouraged, you still left it for a while, right? Yes, I did. I'm <laughs> We all have to mature and grow. Time for our first break. Listeners, you'll find links to my website and social media at the Good Grief page at Voice America. And to find Mary Potter Kenyon, you can go to marypotterkenyon.com, which is M-A-R-Y-P-O-T-T-E-R-K-E-N-Y-O-N.com. Be back soon. What sets apart VoiceAmerica.tv from the other video content providers on the Internet? Choice and flexibility means that you can host your video content live or on demand on the main VoiceAmerica.tv channels through your own branded media player or your own private TV channel. We support multiple media formats, so all of your video content can be in one place. We offer a number of advertising and video packages. For more information, visit VoiceAmerica.tv. If you think you've seen online TV like this before, let us surprise you. Be sure to like the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel on Facebook. You'll find great health tips from the experts. Find out more about your favorite shows and talk back to our team. Search Voice America Health or click the like button under the player today. This is Good Grief host Cheryl Jones. Whether you're in grief, crisis, deep loss, or transition, working with the right therapist can move you forward like nothing else. That's why I'm happy to be sponsoring BetterHelp. Their user-friendly platform connects you with a therapist uniquely suited to support you. If you want to know more, follow the link on my host page or go to betterhelp.com slash goodgrief. That's betterhelp.com slash goodgrief and receive a 10% discount for the first month. Listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1 866 472 5792. That's 1 866 472 5792. You may also send an email. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. This is your host, Cheryl Jones, and I've been talking with Mary Potter Kenyon uh, most particularly about her latest book called Called to be Creative, A Guide to Reigniting Your Creativity. And one thing that I really appreciated in the book, Mary, was um, the, the times you referred to um, the way that trying all kinds of different things that you don't think you can do feeds creativity. Uh, it made it explained myself to me a little more because I'm always, you know, why don't I just knit? 
right? I know how to knit. Why don't I knit? Well, because I want to try appliqueing towels or I want to, you know, um, and I'm great at some of it and terrible at others, but uh, I was very fascinated by that idea that that's actually important to keeping our creativity ignited. Yes, I do a lot of workshops now um, with different exercises that kind of ignite your creativity. Using the both sides of your brain is something that we're not used to doing. I think when I, um, and the, it's also being around other creative people. So yes, some of these projects that we try or some of these things we try would be alone. Um, but I ended up starting a couple creativity groups just because I discovered what it was like at writing conferences when I was in a room full of people all excited about the same thing mm -hmm. that we feed off that um, creative energy. I mean, I can feel it in, this is Zoom and I can still feel it coming from you when you talk about certain topics. That creative energy then makes me creative or feel creative. So there's something to do with creative energy when you are in a group. I'd say find your tribe. If you find a group of people that love the same kinds of things you do, that can feed, feed on your creative energy too. But sometimes we have to work our brain in different ways, like making mind maps or um, just doing some jumpstart creativity exercises because we might feel blocked. We might think, well, I, there's nothing I'm interested in. I always tell people to look back to your childhood and think, and some of us have to look farther back than others, true, but <laughs> think, think about those things that you were drawn to naturally. Did you follow your grandpa around in the garden and are, were you fascinated by bugs and insects or flowers or did you love to bake cookies with your mother or did you sit there and doodle? For, for hours or like I did read books for hours. And I don't know if there's anything creative about poking anthills with sticks, but I spent a lot of time doing that too as a child. So maybe that means I need to spend more time in nature. So, mm -hmm. and we have to stretch our creative muscle. So if you're blocked with what, if you're a writer and you're blocked or you're a painter and you're blocked, or you just stick and spend time in the kitchen and stuff, that's, it's good for us to try new things and use different parts of our brain and, and stretch those creative muscles and stop again worrying about what it's going to look like or what that end product is going to be. Yeah, it occurred to me that trying tons of, tons of things we don't know how to do um, does, does acclimate us to failure a little more, mm -hmm. which to me, you can't really create unless you're willing to risk failure. Mm -hmm. So, you know, make a bad painting on purpose. Yeah. Have, fun. Have fun doing it. Laugh at it when you're done with it. When we yeah. did painting in our creativity group, one woman was so used to having everything look a certain way and be perfect that she actually got up to leave when, when the painting wasn't looking like what she wanted it to look like. And we all just, you know, got her to relax and say, just say you meant for it to look like that. I mean, just, you know, tell people we wouldn't have known. Right. We know <laughs> it's okay. And then she finally relaxed enough to have a little bit of fun. But I did the same thing while we played ukuleles. I I um kind of froze and I'm the one always telling people, you know, just let yourself have fun and just relax. And I'd never played a musical instrument. And this this instructor said, We're we're all gonna be playing a tune by the end of the night. 
and my fingers weren't doing what I wanted and I was fumbling. I started to feel embarrassed and I'm starting to, and then I look up across the table and I see another woman having just as much trouble as I was. And we started laughing and then we relaxed and we just had fun. And no, we did not play a tune by the end of the evening, but guess what? I've never had a deep seated desire to be a musician. So I, I realized I was telling people to relax and have fun and fail, but I didn't want to fail myself. But I, well, I don't know if I failed. I tried. The person teaching it didn't help you that much because she introduced a goal. Mm-hmm. So yeah. that that that'll do it for me because um, I grew up in a pretty pretty goal oriented environment, you know. So <laughs> if I'm going to be creative, I can have a sense of direction. But if I have a goal, sometimes it's it's not going to yeah. unfold. <laughs> yeah, I, I think you're right. Yeah. <laughs> Let's share a little more from the book. You know, it's important to say, even though we did a show already about these losses, that within a very brief period of time, your mother died, your husband died, and your grandchild died, which is so um, undoing potentially, right? And that's why you have the credibility of having been there, because if writing helped you in that period of time, it's really got something to offer, at least some people. Um, so I, I wanted to highlight that just to say that you, the last segment you talked about your mother's death, but shortly thereafter was your husband's death. And that's what, where this excerpt starts. Yes. When David died that March, it would have been easy to give up the creative endeavors he'd supported and encouraged. Without him at my side, much of it seemed meaningless. Then I reminded myself of how much David believed in me, how he'd reveled in my successes. How could I give up on a book that had been his idea in the first place? The workshops he'd encouraged. I was determined to continue those creative endeavors in his honor. My writing took on a frantic pace, born of pain. I journaled, wrote essays and articles, and began work on another book. A corner of my couch turned into a paper nest where I'd sit for hours surrounded by piles of papers and books. Interest in how trauma can be a catalyst for positive change took hold in the mid-1990s when the term post-traumatic growth was introduced by pioneering scholars Richard Tedeschi and Lawrence Calhoun. Post-traumatic growth occurs when a person utilizes hardships and life trauma to grow in their interpersonal relationships, spirituality, appreciation of life, personal strength, and yes, creativity. This proved true for me on all fronts. I'm no longer the person I was before I lost mother, husband, and grandson in the space of three years. In the seven years following my husband's death, I signed six book contracts, coordinated an annual grief retreat, became a public speaker and a workshop presenter, established a large network of mentors and friends, and developed a personal relationship with God in the process. My husband foresaw the professional achievements, but no one who knew me just 10 years ago could have predicted either the spiritual or the relationship changes, least of all me. Not when I'd been painfully shy for so many years, cultivating so few friendships. Creativity has the power to alter the darkness in our lives, whether we paint with it, draw with it, write with it, 
sing with it, work or play with it, or even just think with it. George D. Cohen says in The Creative Age, I was driven to create in honor of those I grieved, not just in writing about them, but reaching out and encouraging others through workshops, classes, and public speaking. It seemed my heart had not just been broken, it had been broken wide open. When I spoke before a church congregation a year after my husband died, I discovered the authenticity that comes from personal experience. I began speaking on finding hope and faith and grief the following year. By 2017, I'd obtained certification for grief counseling. To this day, the comment I cherish most regarding my books and speeches is that people relate to me because I am so real. I became a grief counselor because of my own pain, not in spite of it, aware that my own grief experience adds to my credibility. Uh, just what we were talking about, huh? Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, it stands out a bit. I, I've, had, I've had it said to me so many times working with grievers, what's the point now? And it stands out to me that the initial point most people can get a little inkling of is living a life that honors the person they lost. Mm -hmm. The sense of, of living forward for them because, because they can't. Uh, and that, that's embedded in that, in that piece of writing. Um, but it, eventually it feels to me like it, it really goes beyond that. For instance, this show is definitely in honor of my wife, you know, my partner who died. But it's also about the life that I've built going forward from there and the people I meet and the tribe I have, right? It's, it's uh, I would do it now, even if I somehow got, got word from on high that it didn't honor her anymore. Mm -hmm. I would do it because it's my life. Right, <laughs> so right. I wonder if, if that resonates with you too, that sense of kind of that being a way to get yourself going at the start. And then at a certain point, you don't need, need that. You may still be doing it, but you don't really need to be doing it. It's a wonderful point because I think initially when you lose somebody, when I lost my mom and I wanted to, live a life that she'd be proud of. Or when I lost my husband, I wanted to be more like the best of him because he was so honest and a good, decent person. And then when Jacob died, our, my little eight-year-old grandson, he was such a good, good, sweet little boy. You just, you just want to live a life that honors those people. But not only that, we can take from those losses and become more like the best of those people. Mm. And so, yes, I think that initially drove me in a lot of what I was doing. But like you, the grief retreat that I do, the writer's conference that I do, it's, you're right, it's, it's no longer driven by those specific losses. It's, it's, I've become who maybe I was supposed to be all along, or maybe who I was supposed to become or who I was meant to be. Mm -hmm. And I don't want to lose that new me. I love, I love the new me. And it's, I Feel like it's terrible to have lost people to become this person i don't know if i would have become this person if i had not had that loss mm -hmm. 
but I like myself better now. Uh, oh, I so agree with that. I so agree with that. And then there's the, you may not have had this experience because your husband died suddenly, but um, my wife definitely planted seeds for what she thought I ought to go towards mm -hmm. beyond her death. Mm -hmm. um, including, I wonder sometimes if I would have um, reconnected and fallen in love with someone less than two years after she died, if she hadn't told me to do it. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> you know, she was very firm about it. Uh, <laughs> and I do think that's, um, I do want to hear from you because I know that you just got married. And so I'm yeah. always interested in that. Having remarried myself, that's can be a complicated process. But that sense that that's what she wanted for me that did help me a great deal at first mm -hmm. and thank thank i'm so glad she gave you that permission and my <laughs> husband did too but he didn't know he was going to die how awful when somebody has the opposite when somebody says, don't you ever get remarried or something when they, they know they're dying and stuff. oh my gosh oh, that's so much even, to work through but my and husband, even just saying nothing by the way yeah yeah, yeah. Without knowing that he was going to have a heart attack and die, my husband was in the three months previous saying things that later made sense, but at the time didn't make sense because if I if I ever died before you, I'd want you to get married again because I know how much you love hugging and holding hands. And and I just looked at him because I thought, you know, why is he saying that now? And so I had permission, and it's I did get married just two weeks ago, and to a widower also, and his wife he. She had cancer, and so she said the same thing. I don't want you to be alone. And so we both felt like we had permission, but of course we don't need permission to love again, but sometimes we feel like we need that. We both had permission to do that, and um, that's, you know, I reminded my kids of that when they said, well, you know, you're not, you're not going to forget dad, are you? You know, it's just like, of course not. How wonderful that we both can talk that would about. Be, that would yeah. be rather impossible. It's, it's exactly. There's those eight reminders every day. Yeah. I don't know if anyone can do that, but I know you and I certainly can't. Yeah. Um, there's too much of our lives wrapped up in, in those losses, right? Yes. Yeah. yeah. But, um, you know, I, di I didn't feel... Uh, Permission wasn't quite how I felt it. Uh, well, at first, I was just plain mad. I've mentioned that on the show yeah. before. Like, why are you saying that? You know, I knew she was going to die at that point, but I was just like, ugh, I'm, yeah. I don't want to do that. No, I was just like, I was like, what if it's not as good as this? And she said, well, maybe it'll be better, which was extremely oh. generous. Um, yeah. But, but. I felt that she had put her blessing on it. Yes. Uh, yes. She had said, this is what I want for you. Mm -hmm. And um, my second wife knew her, but we didn't know each other. So that, that reinforced it for me. But, you know, it's true. People get around to, if that's something they want in their lives, they find a way through. But it is much harder, much harder. Um, and and you have that, um, my wife hasn't lost a spouse, but she lost her father right before my wife, so we know grief together. Right. And I wonder how much impact it has. Um, we won't be able to talk about this, but I want to 
plant it before the break mm-hmm. um, and then come back to it, how much impact it has that you share that territory, that you know what grief is, you know, obviously not the same, you're two different people, but um, you both have to incorporate the person who died and, and the person you're loving now. Mm-hmm. Uh, I really want to hear from you, you know, whether that, what, what place that takes in your, your current relationship. So yeah. let's talk about that when we come back. Yes, I'd love to. Listeners, while we're, on the, <laughs> while we're on the break, uh, take the opportunity to go check out my website at weatheringgrief.com or the Good Grief Host page. There's links to pretty much everything I do almost on there. Maybe not my Instagram account now that I think about it, but other than that. And to find Mary Potter Kenyon, you can go to marypotterkenyon.com, M-A-R-Y-P-O-T-T-E-R, K-E-N-Y-O-N dot com. Be back after the break. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Healthcare has been a major part of news stories today with one thing that has been consistent, inconsistency. Both healthcare providers and patients have to work around and get used to a constantly changing set of rules and issues. Nurses have historically been left out of this decision-making. Listen to Once a Nurse, Always a Nurse, exploring the world of nursing with host Leanne Meyer. Health professionals, we invite you to share your ideas and experiences while listening to experts in various areas of nursing. Listen Mondays at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Health and Wellness. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back to Good Grief. This is your host, Cheryl Jones, and I've been talking with Mary Potter Kenyon about how she's navigated her grief by engaging with her creativity. And before the break, Mary, we were just kind of, we began talking about remarriage and and the blessing of having been given permission or whatever we want to call it, <laughs> to, to, to have had our first spouses refer to their expectation that we would love again without them. Yeah, and what a help that is. But then every time I have a, a widow on who has re, uh, re-upped to love, I guess, <laughs> I really like to talk about it because um, it's such a particular experience and I'm selfish, you know, I want to share it with others. Um, so uh, this, this experience you're having where both you and your new husband have... Um, been widowed, uh, and I was I was just so curious how that I know how my wife now having lost her father I know how that's laced into our relationship our mutual griefs but they're not the same griefs whatsoever so how would you how would you say that weaves itself into your relationship now 
I think it's very, um, very odd that when I was began dating this widow, widower, I pulled up a picture of his wife off the internet. And when I knew I was getting serious about him, which happened very quickly, and it didn't seem like something a sane person would do, but I put her picture on my desktop. And every once in a while, I would look close into her eyes and say, I'm going to take care of him. I'm going to love him. Because mm-hmm. I knew he had already told me that that's what she wanted for him. And so you, they become a part of your relationship, but not a threatening part, not a part because you know, you know, of course they're going to be a part of their lives for forever. And we both have children. I have eight and he has four. And so that's their mom. And I look at those kids and, I, and they're adults. And I think those are motherless children. Mm. And so it makes me warm to them. And, and so we talk about them uh, and it's with ease. And that's, that's very freeing too. And we know that same kind of grief. And we know that same kind of loneliness. And so it's like, it, it's really hard to explain what it means to me to have this person that I wanted in my life for probably at least the last five or six years when I was open to the idea of another relationship because it's been nine and a half years since my husband died and Mm -hmm. I think I knew early on that I didn't want to be alone forever I didn't dare hope that I might find love again and I think he knew like three years after his wife died that he didn't want to be alone and he knew what she wanted to. So I, I think you're right. I think the word is it's a blessing, not permission, mm-hmm. but we had that blessing from each of our spouses that because they loved us, that's what they would want for us. And you can tell people that when they are um, starting to date or date or something and then feeling guilty because, Oh no, you know, poor person who, I lost, I'm thinking about somebody else or opening my heart to love, but that's exactly what they would want for you. And I knew that. And so I think, and he knew that. And so I think that helped, but we both feel the same way that he feels his wife, former wife, Mindy. And I feel my former husband, David had something to do with this setting us up because the relationship is so perfect. We don't know how it works and we don't know if that's (laughs) even possible, but it kind of feels like that's what they did. You don't need to know. It's a nice feeling to have anyway. (laughs) It's a nice feeling to have. You know, I have this other thought uh, that there's, I feel as if uh, there's these litmus tests for people And um, someone being able to incorporate the fact that you never broke up with the past person. Mm -hmm. The relationship changes when the person dies, of course, right? But she's still very dear to me. Right. I still have a relationship with her. I still talk to her in my head, all that. To me, it takes a certain amount of maturity in the other person to accept that. And I don't mind that I just completely eliminated anyone who couldn't handle that because if you can't handle that there's probably a bunch of other stuff you can't handle Mm -hmm. does that seem true to you as well yeah the truth is that love doesn't stop when the person dies you and it can continue to grow and my kids see it they still love their dad stuff it doesn't always make sense to them but and so that person you know, you still love them and that's okay. 
because we all have room. Just like we tell our kids when you have a second child or something, well, I've got room in my heart for another child. I don't love one more than the other. Well, we have room in our hearts for a second spouse. Yeah. Absolutely. Let's share a little more of the book. Mm -hmm. uh, this to me is, is you kind of um, a little further along the, the spectrum of, of incorporating loss uh, feels that way. Uh, Timeline wise, maybe. Yes. <laughs> I have a history of writing my way through difficult periods of my life, beginning with that teen angst then through my husband's cancer in 2006 and my mother's death in 2010. I assumed the reason I turned to journaling as I mourned my husband was because I was a writer. Weeks into my grief journey, however, I wondered how anyone could survive the experience without writing about it. In an attempt to understand my own, I began researching the topic of grief as though studying for a final exam, reading dozens of books and articles about the grieving process. In doing so, I stumbled across repeated references to expressive writing as a healing tool. Dr. James Pennebaker is often lauded as the pioneer in studying expressive writing as a route to healing. Pennebaker, Regent's Centennial Chair of Psychology at the University of Texas in Austin, discusses his findings in his book, Opening Up, The Healing Power of Expressing Emotions, revealing how short-term, Focused writing can have a beneficial effect for anyone dealing with stress or trauma. In his original study in the late 1980s, college students wrote for 15 minutes total on four consecutive days about the most traumatic or upsetting experiences of their lives, while control subjects were instructed to write about superficial topics. Those in the experimental group showed marked improvement in immune system functioning, and had fewer visits to the health center in the months following the study. Not only that, but despite an occasional initial increase in distress during the first session of writing, there was a marked improvement in their emotional health. Pennebaker's original expressive writing paradigm has been replicated in hundreds of studies, each measuring different potential effects of expressive writing. Not only has subsequent research confirmed his original findings regarding physical well-being, writing about emotionally charged topics has been shown to improve mental health, reducing symptoms of depression or anxiety. I have to put a word in that uh, maybe there are some people out there that are like me. I absolutely, I've met so many people who just plain had to write. Right, you know, right off the bat, not all writers, by the way, for me, I couldn't write. And that does happen. But I did do other things. I, I had forms of expression. And um, I'm wondering how much it can be said that having forms of expression, um, whether it's writing or another form, um, is a big piece of the helpful quality. Uh, writing helps me, but not in that moment, interestingly. Yeah, and it doesn't have to be writing. Uh, right. You know, for instance, I, I'm always mentioning, for me, it was singing. I had to sing. I had to, I had to, I had to. Uh, for other people, other things. But, but having people know your story, even if it's you, because when you write, you're telling your story to you, aren't you? Mm-hmm. 
<laughs> so even, yeah. I mean, I, I think there is such a benefit. That's how therapy works too. Um, especially kind of more narratively oriented therapy. Somebody hearing you, hearing your story, um, accepting it at it as is, has a tremendous impact. And I always tell people to find that they need to find what works for them. So what worked for me or what worked for you might not work for somebody else, but there is um, something that's why we would try different creative activities and maybe making the rocks or or starting a scholarship fund in honor of the person we loved or doing Christmas different by uh, trying to find the worst, most horrendous gift you can possibly find, which is what I did, what we did the year after my grandson died. We won prizes for the worst possible gift because all of that is creative. How all liberating of that is, is that? No, it was like <laughs> all of a sudden we almost had a little bit of fun. I mean, so you, what worked for me, and I always, I do expressive writing for healing classes because uh, it, writing, I try it. I, I tell people, try it. Maybe, maybe it won't be for you. Maybe you won't, won't enjoy it, or maybe you won't get any benefit from it. Uh, but it doesn't. It's a very cheap thing to try. Expressive writing and journaling is you pen and paper. And and your book is particularly good at prompting that. And there are a couple of others out there. Expressive writing for healing, because sometimes I've noticed with my clients, people need a little bit of a structure, mm-hmm. and yeah. a, and a little bit of an invitation, and a little bit of a this is going to be junky. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if you've ever re- read the book Writing Down the Bones. Oh, yes. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, there's a story about her that a friend asked to read her journals, and she said they're, they're not good writing, they're horrible. And the friend wouldn't believe her and read them and came back and said, you know, they're horrible. Yeah, they're, they're a mess. <laughs> they're, because... There's nothing, there's like hardly anything that has landed in any of your books in here. <laughs> and she was saying, yep, that's the idea. Get, that's... you know, fertilize the ground. That smells bad. <laughs> Our emotions are messy. It's okay if our journal's messy. <laughs> yeah. But but it takes a while for people to get there. Um, even I was talking to my niece the other day, and I said, what are you enjoying in school? She said, well, I like English, but I don't like writing. I said, you don't? She said, I'm a good writer, but I don't like this thing where I have to research. And I used to like it when I could just write whatever I wanted. <laughs> I was ah. like, you need to be writing whatever you want then. Exactly. It's not it, the that's how it happens, like. isn't it? It wasn't yeah. the writing that she didn't like. But you wouldn't start. have known that at the start. Yeah. Not yeah. until you dug a little deeper into what is it she doesn't like? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? yeah. So... Um, I guess that's the takeaway from today, if nothing else, uh, is be bad at it. Mm-hmm. But go ahead and do it anyhow. <laughs> Have fun. Play. Have fun. Um, do it for the. Do it for simply trying something new. Do it just to see what see what it is in you that's creative. Because there is something in you that's creative. Get, take back your crayons, as I always say. Take back. Your <laughs> Absolutely. You know, it's it's. Um, I share with you that that grief eliminated my shyness, pretty mm-hmm. much. There's a, a rare occasion if I go into a large group, which I don't anymore, uh, of strangers, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, where I'll feel that way for a minute, and I have to just sort of stand there until it passes. But um, I wonder if if it's clear to you what else has changed in you, what else is different in you, aside from just 
the ability to be more outgoing in the world and, and do these things that call your heart. Anything else that you're aware of? I love people. I don't, I'd never liked people before. <laughs> I, I know it sounds terrible. It sounds terrible. But I just, I meet people and I meet, I don't meet a stranger anymore. I, I look for something good in them and the grouchy waitress might be grouchy because somebody yelled at her that morning or the cashier who snaps at me. I, I just think, oh, oh, you poor thing. Instead of getting annoyed and angry and I'm a kinder and a gentler person and I just, I really, I, like I said, my heart didn't just break, it broke wide open. I wonder if the two kind of connect. Uh, that, that resonates with me too. I never hated people, but you know, I, was, I, I wasn't sure I liked them though. <laughs> I, <think it's> <laughs> I definitely didn't trust them. <laughs> there you but, go. Um, there's some way that, um, one thing I did is I stopped pretending that I was uh, superficial. Mm -hmm. And I now, in social situations, either people love to talk to me or they leave quickly. <laughs> because <laughs> I always talk about depth. And mm -hmm. I realized part of what I wasn't liking is that that wasn't really acceptable. Yeah. So that's where we're going to leave it for today. I've really enjoyed having you. Thanks so much for being here again. Thank you so much for having me, Cheryl. To find Mary and her books, which I highly recommend, go to marypotterkenyon.com. Next week, I'll have Vanitha Rendell Risner, author of Walking Through Fire, A Memoir of Loss and Redemption. This has been Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. I look forward to being with you again next week for another meaningful conversation. Thank you so much for joining us for Good Grief. Please come back next Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Cheryl Jones, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a meaningful week. Abre mi corazón.